It's spring of 1862, a year into the Civil War, and soldiers are dying by the tens of thousands on battlefields all across the U.S. A 34-year-old named William Hammond has recently been named as the new Army Surgeon General by Abraham Lincoln. Hammond is young, he's brash, he's got a ton of ideas. He redesigns the Army medical wagons to be more efficient. He designs new types of hospitals and demands better record-keeping. He also makes his bosses furious. He was court-martialed within three years. Uh, Hammond uh, was kind of prickly and proud and ran into a prickly and proud Secretary of War. So he was given the heave-ho with uh, slightly trumped-up charges of providing blankets to Confederate prisoners. That's Mike Rohde. We'll come back to him in a minute. Anyway, one of the projects young Hammond had started in his short time as Army Surgeon General, it had an unusual goal. He wanted to collect, quote, all specimens of morbid anatomy, surgical and medical, which may be regarded as valuable. So the initial founding of the museum was to collect specimens of both surgical interest, which usually was an amputated limb, or a wet tissue part like a colon. And the idea was to write a medical and surgical history of the War of the Rebellion. What started with three dried and varnished specimens of the human body would grow into an effort that spans over 150 years, over millions of samples and multiple institutions. A vast museum of human mortality. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a daily celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're headed to the National Museum of Health and Medicine. It's in a boxy, brutalist building in Silver Spring, Maryland. And it contains one of the greatest collections of disease, injury, and just plain human body bits that has ever been assembled. If you're squeamish, this episode might not be for you. But for the rest of you, join me in what I like to think of as the nation's crypt with your crypt keeper for the day, Mike Rohde. So what you're saying is that I definitely can't refer to you as the Crypt Keeper. Uh, no, not in that role. <laughs> if I had to tell my kid who's, who's six what it is, uh, what would you say? What is the National Museum of Health and Medicine? Uh, It's a slightly scary museum with some really cool bones on display and some things that may make you wake up at night. (laughs) That's that's an excellent description. Mike Rohde was the museum's archivist from 1989 to 2001. I was at the museum for a long time, yes. uh, (laughs) I I drank the Kool-Aid. I believed in the idea of a national museum of medicine. The idea or mission of this museum was that they were going to collect limbs, bones, body parts from the war so they could study them. The hope was that they might learn how to better treat wounded soldiers. But this was also a collection of human body parts. So from the very beginning, people were both attracted to and repelled by the museum. If you went in, you would see cabinet after cabinet made out of wood of bones displayed behind glass with no labels, no explanations, except just a number. Founded in 1862, the early days of the museum were deeply intertwined with the Civil War. For a time, the collection was displayed inside the Ford Theater, where Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. And the museum 
it contained pieces of both of them. There was definitely two fragments of John Wilkes Booth's uh, spine, a couple of fragments of the Lincoln skull and the probe that were used to look for the bullet. Uh, but it was more about the common soldiers than it was about Lincoln at that time. There were a lot of common soldiers specimens on display, and they would stop by. And just to be clear here, some of the common soldiers who fought in the Civil War were actually stopping by to see their own body parts. One person stopped by and asked for his amputated limb back, and person in charge of the um, surgical section, John Hill Brinton, told him that he had signed up for the duration of the war. And, um, you know, so his limb was still enlisted. (laughs) The museum continued after the war and continued to collect presidential specimens. There's a section of James Garfield's spine where the assassin's bullet that killed him passed through. The brain of the man who assassinated him, that's in a jar nearby. There are more mundane parts of presidents, too. Samples of the cancer that killed Ulysses S. Grant and Dwight Eisenhower's gallstones. At the museum, it doesn't matter if you're the president or the president's assassin or a common soldier. As far as the museum's concerned, in the end, we're all specimens of morbid anatomy. Of course, the museum would go on to become something much more than a so-called repository for bottled monsters and medical curiosities. The collection would expand beyond those display cases of Civil War bone fragments and would grow into a place where medical mysteries were solved, where lives were saved, and where some of humanity's most dangerous enemies were put under the microscope. It's July of 1997, and we're in the tiny town of Brevig Mission, Alaska. It's way out on the western Alaska coast, looking out over the Bering Strait. And here in front of us, on the edge of Alaska, there's a seven-foot hole, about the size of a coffin, dug deep into the permafrost. And kneeling inside of it is a 72-year-old pathologist named Johan Holten. He's attempting to use his wife's pruning shears to cut open the ribcage of a frozen body, a body that's been held deep in the permafrost for nearly 80 years. Halton is assisted in this task by four members of the local indigenous Enupiat community. They've given this elderly pathologist permission to exhume one of their relatives. And down there in the pit, seven feet deep, Halton finds what he's looking for. A pair of perfectly preserved frozen lungs. In 1918, when the Spanish flu reached this remote village, it killed 72 out of 80 adult residents in less than a week. Because those bodies were buried in the frozen ground, there was a chance of finding the virus, finding the Spanish flu intact in these lungs, which is exactly what Halton was there to find. From there, the lung tissue would make its way back to an institution that had grown out from that original Army Medical Museum, an institution with an even more ambitious goal. By World War I, the focus had definitely uh, changed to pathology. Um, The museum was kind of an afterthought. As the Army Medical Museum grew beyond the Civil War, it changed its focus to the everyday wars that our bodies fight, infection and disease. And in doing so, a new collection began to emerge. In the 1920s, they were forming pathology registries. There was a collection of, uh, I think, 20,000 eyeballs. 
So they would go out to doctors and, and say basically, hey, send us all your, you know, lung tissues or send us all your uh, spinal disorders. Is that kind yeah, of Yeah, what, what happened eventually was that it flipped. So these people would be sending their specimens into the registry and hoping to get a final second opinion on it. Because they had, they had so many examples of these things, they could actually say, hey, we think this is this, not that. Exactly. So this is pretty important. What Mike is talking about here is the point where the collection became an active source of discovery and research, not just for soldiers, but for everyday people, a place where doctors could look for guidance. And over time, this pursuit and these collections became their own institution, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, one of the most important and influential pathology organizations in the world. Literally tens of thousands of people came through for training and hundreds of thousands of people came through for having something diagnosed and millions of people had specimens diagnosed when their doctors sent in cases. One random child, his grandparents happened to live across the street from me, his dad got prostate cancer. I just, you know, I got his records and walked up to the prostate doctors and they're like, yeah, this is a, you know, moderate aggressive one. I'd go ahead with the surgery. You know, it's nice to have those people that had looked at 30,000 cases of prostate cancer on call to be able to do the diagnosis for anybody whose insurance company or whose doctor would send it up there. Yeah, it seems like these samples, some of them which were collected close to a century ago, represent enormous amount of, of, of information. Some of it, maybe we don't even know what the questions we want to ask are yet, but that having those samples is of real value. That's absolutely true. But there are literally millions of those that remain in the Joint Pathology Center that are a resource for genetic studies of either diseases or cancers or people's genotypes if that type of research is approved the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. That's where Johan Hulten, the pathologist digging up bodies in Alaska, had sent his Spanish flu lung tissue. Using those samples that Johan collected in the Arctic, along with samples from the early tissue collection, two scientists were able to sequence the Spanish flu in hopes of learning more about it. It was another entry into the vast library of human disease. The Army Medical Museum, started by that brash Army Surgeon General, has succeeded in ways its creator William Hammond couldn't have imagined. The original mission to collect specimens of morbid anatomy has succeeded wildly. It's gathered hundreds of thousands of tissue samples of bones, objects, photos, microscopes, anatomical models, x-ray equipment. But it also helped pave the way for doctors to learn about and diagnose rare diseases. Unfortunately, both the National Museum of Health and Medicine and the Armed Forces Pathology Institute were included in a 2005 base realignment and closure, also known as getting bracked. It meant closing the Institute of Pathology and moving their tissue sample collection under the Department of Defense, despite a huge outcry from the pathology community. I didn't agree with it then, and I don't agree with it now, because as Ebola and before it SARS and after a coronavirus show, we live in a world that's interconnected and the Pathology Institute was prepared to help handle some of those. It also meant moving the medical museum to a smaller building farther out in the suburbs. 
I put a lot of my life into growing the collections of the museum, and I was very proud of what I did. I am disappointed at where the Medical Museum is now. I left because it was moving to a smaller building in an industrial park in a suburban Maryland neighborhood, as opposed to moving to the mall, which was another option. So the feelings I have now are mostly sadness at how it shrunk and missed its grasp at the brass ring. Despite all these changes to the Pathology Institute, you can still very much visit the museum and see the medical collection born out of the Civil War. It's absolutely amazing. They have everything from Robert Hooke's microscope to an actual field hospital used in Iraq, and they're all on display. It's a tiny fraction of the whole collection, but it gives a visitor a glimpse into the long history of the military's medical collection and why it matters. And even despite his personal disappointments, Mike Rohde still believes deeply in the museum's mission. So what do you hope people take away from the National Museum of Health and Medicine when they visit? I hope they take away a fascination with the human body and the attempts to treating it and what can go wrong with it and the truly heroic way that people have tried to improve people's lives and health over a century and a half of American medical history. At one point in its history, the Army Medical Museum was actually on the mall in D.C. I hope one day it returns. Listeners, what was an experience you had in a museum that was truly amazing? Call us at 315-992-7902 or record a voice memo and email it to us at hello at atlasobscura.com. I cannot wait to hear your museum stories. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes Chris Naka, Doug Baldinger, Camille Stanley, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was mixed by John Delore. Luce Fleming. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. Talk to you soon. Witness Docs from Stitcher.